Welcome this morning. If you're here for the first time or first of a few times, I want to invite you to take one of these little forms, little things you can fill out in the seat back in front of you, and please fill that out for us. Give us a chance to connect with you. I promise we won't um, overwhelm you with anything, really. We just want to connect you to some information about who we are and what we believe and who we are as a people. So uh, you can drop that in the offering little bags later on in the morning. Let's begin with prayer. And um, then we're going to climb into the book of Ephesians. Lord, first this morning, we want to pray for our treasures, um, carloads of them that drove away this morning, um, thinking about anticipating all that's in store for them this week. Lord, I just pray that it is a real encounter with you and a real time of sweet fellowship and closeness with each other. Uh, We're thankful for the um, adults that have gone to be part of this and to help oversee this trip. We're thankful for Scott McCullough's preparation for teaching this week, uh, for Aaron Sherman's preparation for leading worship. Lord, we pray that every single one of those things will just be a sweet aroma and a sweet offering to you and that your people, um, specifically our youth, will be uh, built up and edified and encouraged and equipped We do pray for just basic things like safe travel, uh, for safety uh, as they go on hikes and do different adventures together. We pray that you would watch over every step and uh, bring them home safe to us, but bring them home uh, more mature and uh, more um, potent in their worship, more fervent in their commitment. Uh, We entrust them to you, Lord, and we're thankful. Also this morning, Lord, we want to pray for another pastor and his family. I want to pray for Matt Beasley and his wife and and family. Lord, I'm thankful for the chance to lift him up this morning corporately. We want to lift him up and his family before you with a new baby on the way, um, working on his doctorate, um, pastoring a church, uh, a single pastor model, while he is trying to lead his people, your people, to accept and embrace elders and plural leadership. Lord, there's so much to lift up there. And we are thankful um, for the shared ministry, for the the glimpse into what they're up to and what's going on with their lives. Lord, I I pray first for Matt, for his worship, that it is um, that all of his work, from being a husband and a father to being a pastor, will be fueled by worship. And uh, that you'll sustain him in the um, valleys and the deserts, and that you will grow him and uh, stretch him through those times of um, high demand uh, with his education and with things going on at the church. Lord, but most of all, I pray that it would just be relentless worship that will fuel all of those things. Uh, Lord, we do pray for a shared ministry. Uh, We're thankful for the faithfulness of Ridgecrest Baptist Church 12 years ago that resulted in the birth of this church. Uh, We're thankful that they were selfless and others-oriented and kingdom-oriented, so much so that they sent some of their own families to be part of this work. Lord, we pray that that you would just bless them in that selfless work, uh, that they would be blessed as they see their daughter church down the road uh, making much of you and enjoying you and healthy and planting ourselves, uh, that they would celebrate having a, a granddaughter on the way in fate. Lord, we um, 
I just, ha- just have so much to pray about there. Just so thankful for shared ministry in this community. Lord, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, I pray that it will be honoring to you. I pray that we will be a people that are here not for a speech, um, not to just get our church on, um, but a people who are here to be equipped for the work of service, a people who are, are ready to be uh, stirred up by way of reminder, um, a people who are ready to grow in knowledge. Lord, I pray that I'll be out of the way this morning and that you will use these next few minutes to equip your saints. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We spent the last few weeks, minus a couple of Sundays there where Scott was preaching in the book of Ephesians, tackling uh, what may be the longest sentence, in the Greek anyway, um, in our Bibles, uh, beginning in verse 3 all the way through um, verse 14. In some ways, we've just imagined together in these last few weeks as we've considered this passage that Paul really needed to take a breath here. In some ways, he's just gushing about all that he has and all that the Ephesian church has in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what God has done for them as believers. Um, You could call the first 14 verses or verses 3 through 14 benediction where Paul is just making much of God, just enjoying who he is and what he's done. And then in my Bibles and in my notes, in between verses 14 and 15, I wrote in the little margins there that Paul breathed. Now, we don't know that that's true or not, but I just can't help but imagine that finally he took a breath. He listened to his scribe and said, Paul, breathe. He said, okay, I'll breathe right here. And he took a breath, and then he launched into where we're going this Sunday and next. So really a delightful connection between verses 13 through 14, or 3 through 14, And then today, as we're going into verses 15 through 23, we're going to take a two-Sunday look at this passage, verses 15 through 23. And I would like to begin with reading it. If you haven't turned there, I want to, if you, maybe you might feel like, man, I'm really an audible kind of guy. I like to listen, and I don't really like to look. I want to just urge you to push out of that envelope a little bit, push the envelope, and and look as well. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can have the one in the seat back or the, the seat bottom in front of you. It's blue. Most people like blue. You can handle that. You could put a cover on it if you wanted. Make it yours, seriously, because you're going to need it today. I don't do talky talks. I don't do speeches. I unpack and expose this book, so that's why you need to have this ready this morning because we're going to look at some things together. So the first place you could go to page 976 in that pew Bible I looked up those numbers this morning to try and help you if maybe you're not familiar with where things are. That's okay. Page 976 in your pew Bible in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul breathed, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me share with you a plan for the morning. I don't like being predictable. I joked with Christy the other day about something, and she said, I knew you were going to do that. And we just had our 20th anniversary, and I was like, man, I'm out of material. We're year 20, and I'm officially out of material. I'm predictable officially to my wife. There's one place I, I don't want to be predictable anymore with her. I can try and come up with something. But in regards to preaching, I want to be predictable. And I want you to know what I do nearly every single week, likely every single week. I go about the work of observation, interpretation, and application. It follows every week of study, and most cases it follows that guide is the way we unpack the morning and spend our time together, observation, interpretation, and application. So this morning, we are going to let observation be our guide into some treasures and treats that we can draw out of this and some things that we can apply to our lives. So we're going to begin with two observations and then two considerations of interpretation and application and then two more observations. None of them are especially complicated or especially uh, heavy in terms of... um, having to really think through them, they are heavy in terms of application that they will apply, I believe, to every single one of us this morning. First observation. In verse 17, it says, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There are three persons mentioned in this passage that were dealt with extensively in verses 3 through 14, and that is the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I need to confess something to you. I need to share something with you. I have an old version of the ESV that I've been studying all week. It's really, it's my devotional Bible that I read every day. And it's one that I marked up and preached from for years. And I had to stop preaching from it because I couldn't hardly read it anymore because it was so, I marked my Bibles up and I, I, I ran out of margins and they were just, it was so marked up I had to bail on it. But now it's become my devotional reading Bible. And all week long I've been reading this passage, verse, four, four, verse 17 going, I don't like the way that reads. And here's why, because here's how it read. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a, lowercase s, spirit of wisdom. I just peeked in the Pew Bible as I was standing back there behind Mike Wiley. I I stole yours and I marked it up. I changed it. Because those Pew Bibles apparently are in league with my old Bible. They say a, spirit of wisdom. Like there's these sort of ethereal spirits that float around and we want to grab one and the spirit of wisdom like what in the world even is that thankfully if you well let me let me tell you this if your bible says a lowercase s spirit of wisdom you have an older esv it may be time to get a new one because the new ones thankfully have dealt with that much better and my new one that I'm preaching from says the, with a definite article, and an uppercase S, the spirit of wisdom. Now, all that work to tell you and to point out to you that all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned here in that one verse as they're dealt with in those verses 3 through 14. Just make a mental note of that, and we're going to consider that here in a moment. The other thing I want you to observe with me in this passage If you were here for the first few weeks as we work through the first part of this chapter in Ephesians 1, you know that that Paul is really vertical 
in his adoration and praise. We called it benediction, that he is making much of what God has done for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's some, something significant going on in those verses 3 through 14 that we could call benediction. But then something happens in verses 15 through 23 that is an appropriate and fitting response to those verses 3 through 14. We're going to spend a few minutes on what happens there. But I want you to be thinking along those lines. Something profound happens that's connected. You'll see those things are connected. First, let's deal with the Trinity stuff. In the first three, first verses 3 through 14, Paul deals with what the Father has done in choosing us. You remember that's the first spiritual blessing that he points out. Whatever anathema or whatever untasteful, unlikable thing that might be to the contemporary modern mind, this is what Paul makes a beeline to, is that God chose us before we ever did anything good or bad. Thankfully, God chose us. That's the first thing he deals with there in the Trinity. The second thing, he deals with what the Son does. The Son earns redemption and earns forgiveness for our sins. And the third thing that we considered last week is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, seals us and marks us as His. All three of the persons of the Trinity are at work in those first few verses, that, that gushing benediction. And now here in verse 17, he mentions all three persons of the Trinity again. The Father of glory, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he will give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is Paul dealing with Trinity? He deals with it throughout the book of Ephesians. I don't really know, but I just think it's cool. I just think it's amazingly cool because believing in a triune God is what makes us Christian. See, when you depart from believing in the Trinity and believing that there is a Trinity, three persons, three distinct persons in one Godhead, when you depart from that, you cease to be Christian. It is what makes us Christian. And what's important, I think, is to realize that there are things that are right outside the door that bump right into doing a disservice and, a, and, and, and heretical treatment of that thing that we hold so dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a movement in the Pentecostal church that's called the Jesus-only movement or the oneness movement. And this thing is right outside the door. In fact, one, of the, uh, one day Scott and I were here just studying during the day and a guy stopped in the parking lot and we found that we were confronted with it right here in our parking lot. This idea believes that the, the Father became the Son and that now and later became the Holy Spirit and that he just moved from one form to another, one God in one being, depending on what form fits. It's also called modalism. They have dismissed and disconnected from the thing that we hold so dear in the Trinity. So when we see the persons of the Trinity at work, we may not be able to explain Trinity to our little ones. I can't explain Trinity to, to adult, adults. It is a complicated concept. Three distinct persons in one Godhead? We may not be able to explain it easily, but one thing we can do is enjoy it together when we see it at work. When the Father is choosing and the Son is forgiving and redeeming and the Holy Spirit is sealing, and then here in this passage in verse 17 where we see it again, three distinct persons in one Godhead we should enjoy together. It's what makes us Christian. If you're baptized 
into a Christian church, you were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You might think it impractical. So what if it's impractical? What's practical about worship? What's practical about worship? Just enjoy together seeing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit referenced here. Now, the other observation that I pointed out there is that something's going on there between verses 3 through 14 and verses 15 through 23. Something is happening. There's a transition from gushing benediction in verses 3 through 14 to where Paul breathes between verses 14 and 15, and then Paul begins to intercede for those that he loves. Look at verses 15 and 16 especially. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, he's writing to the Ephesian church, in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, that would be toward each other, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What I want you to see in these next few minutes is that praise and prayer go together. Benediction and intercession go together. Paul spends the first part of this chapter enjoying this this vertical sort of expression of wonder and adoration and marvel of God, and then he transitions. He takes a breath, and then he transitions to prayer for others. Turn to the book of Mark, chapter 12. It's on page 848 of your pew Bible. As you're turning there, I just want to share with you, as I was looking at this transition between benediction and intercession, this, this transition between this vertical adoration and this horizontal engagement of his people in prayer, lifting them up in prayer, this horizontal expression of love, it just sounded familiar. I wonder if any of you are thinking right now, that sounded familiar, the anatomy of this vertical thing taking place and then connecting to this horizontal expression. Let me take you to a passage that will hopefully connect you to what I've been considering all week. I guess I should turn there too. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him. This is someone, a scribe, asking Jesus a question. He says, what commandment, notice that's singular, what's the one commandment that really knocks the ball out of the park? Just give me, can you sort of condense all this stuff to just sort of give me this, this sniper round wonderful commandment. So he asked for which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay, that's one. But then Paul, or then Jesus keeps speaking. He says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
And the scribe, apparently hearing, the, hearing what Jesus said and understanding what he says, he said to him, you are right, teacher. And I'm like, yes, Jesus, no, duh, he's right. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You want to just hit the nail on the head? You want to get what faith looks like and sounds like condensed into one little sentence of two things? The double love command is a nice place to go. A love for God and a love for, for people. Isn't it beautiful when things just really get simple? It's exactly the guide that Paul's following in, in Ephesians chapter 1. Loving God with this vertical adoration, worship, benediction, gushing, taking a breath, and loving people by remembering them and lifting them up in prayer. There's no doubt of his love for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He lists his spiritual blessings, and he goes right down the list of things that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done. He's enjoying those things, but there's also no doubt of his love for others, and the way that plays out is via prayer. It's how his love plays out for others, via prayer. I have a front row seat to this every single Wednesday. It's 6.30 Unless I'm out of town, unless somebody's sick or I'm sick or something, I'm gathering up here with a handful of guys at 6.30 and praying each week. Maybe six guys, it might be three guys, it might be 12 on a random Wednesday morning. I feel like as I saw what unfolded here, I feel like it just sounded so familiar and it seems so familiar because I have a front row seat to guys that gather and pray for people with new babies. They pray for new moms with complications. Or not, just because they're new moms and need prayer. They pray for new dads, old dads. They pray for those who've lost babies and are brokenhearted or those who can't get pregnant or haven't gotten pregnant yet. They pray for the hurting. They pray for the searching. They pray for the lost. They pray for the found. They pray for those who are divorcing and going through that agony. They are praying for nearly every married couple in this church gets hit on every now and again in prayer, lifted up in prayer every now and again. It happens. And I'm thinking about, man, we've got a front row seat to this. I don't know what would compel these men to do this on Wednesday mornings other than love for God and love for God's people because there's really nothing in it for them. There's no recognition. We don't pass out any badges. I was in scouts for like four years, and I, as far as I know, I never got past the rank of tenderfoot. I think, that, I think that's what you get when you get in. It's like private, you know. Like when you go in the military, you get a, everybody's a private. And I, the thing that didn't appeal to me is, is, is the badge collecting. You know, the little sash with all the badges. And I'm not knocking scouting for any of you that are like eagles. I think Brad's an eagle scout. He's looking around. Don't you dare. You know, some guys are really into the badges. Right, Brad? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You're just an easy target because you're right there. Man, I just want you to know when you're praying for other people on a Wednesday morning, hearing at Crosspoint Fellowship, 
there's no recognition for you at all. There's no badges. There's no um, reward that I know of. The only promises, the only guarantees that you have when you lift up other people in a situation like this, because this isn't the only expression of love in our body. But when you do something like this, the only guarantees for these guys are is that you're going to have someone and something to pray about. You're going to have a God who's hearing those some things and some ones in prayer. And third, you're going to be sleepy on Wednesdays. That's really the only guarantees we got. And third, the third one happens, I promise you. But Paul, like these men, are remembering those he loves in his prayers. And his prayers weren't just all about what he needed or what he wanted or what he desired. He remembered those he loved in prayer. I told you there were going to be some heavy moments this morning. They're not heavy in terms of difficult concept. They're heavy in terms of hopefully this is something that will hit you really hard. This question or this thought, if you don't pray for other people, I want to ask you the hard question that you should be asking yourself to really consider. Do you really love other people? Do you really love other people? Does your benediction fuel intercession? It should. It needs to. Now, a couple of more observations from this passage. We've dealt with really two so far, the Trinity, what's going on there. We don't really know, but we know it's awesome. We dealt with what, what is Paul up to or what um, the, the specific thing we're asking there is what's going on between this first section of chapter 1 to the second section of chapter 1. He's going from benediction to intercession. And now we're going to deal with a couple more observations briefly. Here's the first one. He's praying for some people in particular. He's not just praying for the world. He's not just praying for all of Ephesus or all the Roman Empire. He's praying here in this intercession for some people in particular. And secondly, he's praying for something in particular. The first, in regards to who he's praying for, the particular people. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He is very specifically, very strategically praying for Christians in the Ephesian church. It appears that Paul has a special love for the saints in Ephesus. Not only the saints in Ephesus, but the saints particularly in Ephesus. He has a love for the saints wherever they might be. But what I'm talking about is a particular love for the saints. I'm thankful for you. I heard about your faith. I heard about your love for all the other saints. I'm giving thanks for you, and I'm remembering you in my prayers. There's a special and strong love for God's people. 
this little phrase here, for this reason. You have to ask yourself, well, what is that reason for this reason being there? It points back to the previous verse where he's talking about it, the previous concept of the Holy Spirit sealing the saints, marking the saints as his. So in some ways, it's pointing back saying, because you're sealed and marked as his, I have a special love for you, a love that means prayer, a love that means I'm thankful for you. I give thanks for you and remember you in my prayers, saved people. Being a church planter, I went through the process of training for church planting years back, and I sort of bumped into that, those Bumped elbows in those circles since then. I've been to some conferences that were leaning in the direction of church planting. And one conference that Scott and some others uh, of us had a chance to go to, a guy that planted a church in Corpus Christi that was just apparently just exploding numerically. This guy gave away like Lamborghinis and stuff like that for high attendance Sunday. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that was going down in this church. He was our speaker, much to my chagrin, frankly. One of the things that he said I will never forget, he said, man, I really don't enjoy Christians. I love lost people. I have no use for Christians. I thought, man, that doesn't reconcile with guys like Paul here who has a special love for the saints, who's especially mindful of the fact that they're loving other saints well. Man, I call this guy and that mindset, this evangelism maverick sort of mindset that often goes with the revivalist and evangelistic sort of mindset that says, just show me lost people. I love lost people and don't let any found people get in my way. Man, we don't have to love the lost at the cost of loving the found. We should, in fact, love the found, especially Paul says, man, I've heard about your love for the saints, and I'm praying for you, saints. I'm remembering you, saints. I'm thankful for you, saints. Man, I've thought about loving the lost. Hopefully, we all have a love for the lost. Hopefully, there's not a person in this room that doesn't have a love or affection for those that don't know Christ. But I've practically, frankly, found the lost pretty easy to love because there's no accountability involved. I'm not accountable to them. They're not accountable to me. It's Easy, easy. <laughs> Man, loving found people is much harder than that. Loving lost people involves no expectations. I have no expectations of them, and they have none of me. Well, they might. But at least for me, it's easy to love folks that are lost because I have no expectations of them other than to do what lost people do. <laughs> I'm not going to expect them to move in a way that found people move. So there's no accountability. There's very low expectation. So when they do something dumb, I'm like, well, yeah. They don't have the word. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the gathering of the people that's equipping the saints for the work of service. They don't have all these things that we have. Yeah, they're going to do something that's going to be worldly. Yeah, they're going to do some things that you'll look at and go, oh, I can't believe they did that. Easy. It's easy to love lost people. It's hard to love found people. But we should have a special love found people. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to show you a few things in 1 John. This concept of loving the brothers and loving the saints gets so much airtime in the book of 1 John. I just want to show you a few passages. It's on page 1021 of your pew Bible, or if you have an old ESV, maybe even a newer ESV, it might, that page number still might work. 
Listen to these passages. This is just a, a few excerpts from the book of 1 John, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 2. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. We're not talking about physical brothers here either. We're talking about covenant brothers. We're talking about church folk here. I'll show you that here in a second. We're talking about people that you do life with in the local body. We're talking about real people that you bump elbows with in the local body. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Look at verse 23 in the same chapter. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love the brothers. We're talking about the saints here. We're talking about the brothers, the people of God. What I've found, though, what happens in church is it's a whole lot easier when the brother makes you mad or the brothers make you mad. Something goes down at the local body to just divorce one another and go find another church or not. That's easy. But it's missing out on walking in what's being described here. Why does this get so much airtime in the book of 1 John? Because loving the brothers and loving the saints is hard. It's a whole lot easier loving lost people. Or it's a whole, yeah, it's a whole lot easier loving lost people. It's hard to love one another. Especially once you get to know each other. <laughs> once we get to know each other, we find out our frailties and our weaknesses, and our besetting sins, and the things that we continue to do over and over again. Although we're repentant sinners, we continue to sin, and some of those things make it really, really hard to walk with one another relentlessly. But Paul gives us a nice example, not just by loving those who are easy to love, because the Ephesian church must have been pretty easy. We don't really see a bunch of problems going on in the Ephesian church, but Paul communicates the same thing to the Corinthian church. If you've read your Bibles and you've read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you know, wait a minute. Paul says in, the, in chapter 1 of, of 1 Corinthians, I never cease saying thank you for them. I never cease saying thank you for you. And oh, by the way, I'm really enjoying the grace on display in your lives because you need gobs of it. <laughs> a little zinger, a little sideways zinger. But in 2 Corinthians, he communicates this, this vast love that he has for them. Paul isn't just loving the easy people. Paul is loving the hard people as well because that's what saints do. We love one another relentlessly and especially 
Oh, that we would have a love for one another that's so relentless, that doesn't just bail, that doesn't just go hop from one church to the next to try and find a new little relationship that will be better than that last bunch, that once I got to know them, they were made of the same stuff that I am. I want to find something different. You won't. You won't. Because loving the saints is hard. Lastly, I want to consider the observation that he's not only praying for some people specifically, he is praying for something specifically. And what is Paul praying for here in verse 17 and 18? We can make sense of that. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. That's what he's praying for. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He's praying for people that he loves as an, as an overflow of this adoration of God, this benediction giving way to intercession and he's praying specifically for knowledge of God he's not praying as he sits under house arrest in Rome chained to a Roman guard he's not praying for anyone to get well he's not praying for John to get that job he's always wanted He's not praying that Bob will finally get that promotion that he's earned. He's not praying that the Smiths will finally sell that house that's been on the market forever. All of those things are worth praying for. But that's not the cream of what's worth praying for in each other's lives. He's going to the cream here in praying for knowledge of God. Specifically, knowledge of God. Not just fact collecting but a real knowledge of God. This word in the Greek for knowledge here deals more with a real intimacy, a relationship with God. I want you to think about this for a moment. For all you sports fans like me, you can know all the details about some famous sports hero, all the stats. You can know lots about them, but not know them at all, like their family knows them, like their friends know them, like the people that know them that grew up with them. The gnosis here, this Greek word that's being dealt with here, is more than collecting some facts on God. It is actually knowing God. Paul is praying that they won't be a bunch of fact collectors that are just collecting data and stats on the holy God, but that they will actually commune and fellowship with him and be friends in a relationship with their creator. Man, this is a great prayer. This is a great prayer because this kind of knowledge of God gives way to practice. It gives way to practice that reflects the life that we should all be reflecting. One more passage I want you to turn to in 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter. It's just a couple pages over. If you stayed over there in 1 John, you're really close to it. It's on page 1018 of your pew Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, let me show you how beautiful knowledge is. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes this. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I want that, all things that pertain to life and godliness and this power that's granted to us through knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Through knowledge of him, we have divine power that 
pertain to all things in life and godliness through knowledge of Him. All the power of God to live and be godly comes via knowledge. Just let that hit you for a minute. Why do we preach the way we do at Crosspoint? Why have we had an hour and a half long sermon before? Why do I sit expecting you to turn in your Bible, expecting, encouraging you take notes, that you engage this in a meaningful way? Why do I work so hard at studying and unpacking God's Word? Because life alteration, life change, worship comes via knowledge. Let that, that 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 passage hit you. All the power of God to live and be godly comes via knowledge. Pretty good thing worth to pray for, right? Now, while knowledge doesn't guarantee godliness, ignorance guarantees ungodliness. All that to say, man, you got to have knowledge before you're going to have godliness, but it doesn't guarantee it. You can have lots of knowledge and no godliness, but one thing is a guarantee where there's ignorance there will be ungodliness. Hosea chapter 4 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. When Paul was writing about his kinsmen in Romans chapter 10, Paul is brokenhearted that all of his kinsmen did not see who Christ is and understand who Christ is but in chapter 10, he, he exposes the realities of zeal without knowledge. And the heartbreaking problem there in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 and 3, is the heartbreaking problem of zeal without knowledge is that you might actually think that you can earn your salvation. That's how important knowledge is. Man, knowledge is essential. It's worth praying for in the lives of those that we love. It's worth praying for. So Paul prays for those he loves, and he prays for knowledge, showing it's important and necessary, but also showing that it only comes from the Lord. He's praying for it. Now, Paul, if he's like me, I don't, we don't have a lot of details on what Paul's personality was like, but we do have a sense of the the commitment that Paul demonstrated in unpacking the word. I I expect that when he's preparing a sermon, like he's preparing a letter, that he's putting every single thing that he's got into it. But I bet he's sleeping at night knowing that ultimately gnosis, knowledge of God, relationship with God, true life change will only come from God. So he prays. He asks God for it. He recognizes it only comes from the Lord. The things that we should be hoping for in each other, the things that I am hoping for in you, the things we should be hoping for in our children, those things we pine for, can't be wrought by a better sermon. That that, that lets me sleep at night. They can't be developed and delivered by a better illustration. If I can just find that great illustration, then lives will be changed. Gnosis, knowledge of God, will happen. 
If we have better sound system, if our worship is better, then we will just encounter God in some way. While we put every single bit of our effort into those things, we all sleep at night knowing that ultimately, knowledge of God comes from the Lord. Though God may use those things, ultimately know that God, this knowledge of God, is only going to be encountered and enjoyed by what is revealed to us by the spirit that Paul prays for here of wisdom and revelation. It only comes from the Lord. So we work as if it's up to us, but we sleep at night knowing that it's something we should be begging for as we work, begging for in each other, begging for in ourselves. The application this morning is just to remind you, just you, we've already engaged them as love is in both direct directions, or it's not love at all. It's a clanging symbol if it's not in both directions, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. It should be vertical, and it should be horizontal in application toward God's people, especially. We should remember one another in our prayers because love prays. Benediction gives way to intercession. We should give thanks for one another with all our spot and wrinkle, with all our frailty and all our difficulties and all our besetting sins and all our disappointments as you get to know one, one another well. We should love each other especially, relentlessly. And we should pray for knowledge of God in those that we love. We should beg for it because it's the wellspring of worship. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for a quiet few moments where we can engage your word together. I'm thankful for a context. I am thankful for a sound system. I'm thankful I can read. I'm thankful that we have ears and we can hear things. and All of these things that we enjoy together, we appreciate, but we recognize and confess. I confess at the end of this message that the only thing that will be engaged and really understood and connected to this morning is spiritually discerned. So I beg for the Holy Spirit to do the work that we can't do. I beg for the Holy Spirit to do that work in your people this morning. I beg on behalf of shepherds of families that the Holy Spirit will reveal to our families, reveal to our children how great you are. God, I pray that we will grow in love for one another as we grow in intercession for one another, that it will be so much a part of who we are that it will be almost synonymous with love. God, I pray that people will want to go to life group and will be willing to give up a night of their week even if they feel like I'm not getting anything out of it because of what they have to give to others in prayer. The time in prayer that takes place on our life group nights, Lord, I pray for a heightened view of that moment. I pray for a view of that time together as the ultimate expression of love for one another, as we intercede for one another, as it's fueled by adoration. God, I pray and confess to you, I don't pray for my wife and my children enough. I'm personally burdened and personally brokenhearted that I have not interceded as an expression of my benediction for my wife and my three kids. I beg for knowledge of your greatness, Lord. I beg for that in those that we love. We're thankful for your word, Lord. Thankful for Ephesians 1. 
We entrust this message to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.